Amen. Please be seated. You can turn your Bible to John 15. We'll look at verses 1 through 11 this morning. The text is also there at the bulletin. Um, Alexander Schmemann is a... Um, Oh, he's either Greek or Russian. He's Eastern Orthodox of uh, some variety. Uh, sorry, I should know better. But um, he's got a great book called For the Life of the World. And in that book, a uh, great little book, um, he says that from its very beginning, Christianity has been the proclamation of joy. Of all accusations against Christians, the most terrible one was uttered by Nietzsche, when he said that Christians had no joy. Does that make sense to you at all? I mean, do you understand Christianity always to have been the proclamation of joy? Or is Christianity supposed to be like a killjoy? Um, do, you, do you feel it's most terribly lamentable when Christians are joyless? Or do you feel like, well, maybe there's some, some little thing missing when Christians are joyless, but it's not really essential to Christianity it's not really a big deal if you're not joyful all the time. The most terribly lamentable thing, do you have joy because of Jesus Christ? Do you have joy because of Jesus? I assume if you're anything like me, you feel you have a bit of a joy deficit. There's, there's a bit lacking for any number of reasons. There are a lot of alternatives to joy. You could, instead of being joyful, you could be stressed out. Or you could worry, or you could ang- be angry. Um, de- despair and depression, uh, depression are uh, alternatives to joy that compete uh, for place in our heart with joy. Boredom is an alternative. Boredom. If, if you're bored, you're not going to be joyful, are you? Well, usually these things are tied to our view of our curtain, uh, current circumstances. They're either the kind of circumstances that induce rejoicing or not. You're either experiencing circumstances currently that are the kind that induce joy, or they're not. Maybe we can imagine different circumstances under which we would have more joy. Maybe if I were a better person, maybe I could deserve joy, deserve to be happy. If I enriched my life with study or with art, if I surrounded myself with beautiful people or with interesting things... Or maybe if I pursued basic pleasures, food and drink and sex, right? Uh, maybe I'd be more joyful. Wealth helps with a lot of these things. So maybe if I'm will- wealthy, I'd be able to enjoy life better. Or maybe if I were more religious, more deliberate about all the right spiritual disciplines, more serious about my faith, more dedicated, more generous, more compassionate, more just, more holy, that would be the path to joy, Right? Or maybe if our community were a better place, whether that's your home, a more pleasant place, your work environment, if the neighborhood were nicer, if the church were friendlier, if everybody played their roles, pulled their own weight, volunteered in all the right places, all the marriages were fixed, all the children became compliant, congregation growing, how pleasant and joyful everything would be then, right? Isn't joy a frame of mind that you could work yourself into when you sort of stop doing the wrong things and start doing the right things? When you've smoothed out all the bumps in life, got rid of all the unpleasant circumstances that would interrupt your joy? Isn't that? 
If we're working with a view of joy like that, it's no wonder we never really get it. Because that doesn't have anything to do with true joy. True joy comes from somewhere. It's always existed. True joy comes from eternity. True joy comes from God because God has always been joyful. True joy, God's joy, Christ's joy, he says he gives it to us as a gift in our relationship with Jesus. He gives it to us. He says in our passage at the end of it, uh, which we're going to read in just a minute, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So Jesus is talking about giving us what belongs to him, giving us his own joy. And anyone can have it. Anyone can have Christ's joy at any moment. You, you can have it. In fact, Jesus wants that very thing for you to have it. That's what he says. So Shemaimon was right to say Christianity has always been the proclamation of joy. Not just joy held out, dangled in front of you like a carrot, just beyond the reach to get you to lean into it and try harder and pursue it, never really arriving at it. The proclamation of joy, the declaration, the pronouncement, the notification. Did you get the memo? It's the notification of Jesus' own joy shared with you as a gift. That's the heart of uh, Christianity. That's what we're going to talk about this morning from our passage. So, um, so let's pray and we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we pray that you would be at work in us now, in our hearts, through your spirit, in our minds, by your word. Fix our attention on Jesus. Help us to hear what he has to say to us. Help us to be open and receptive to what you have to say to us so that we would know what it means to be joyful in our relationship with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. <clears throat> so here's the setting. Uh, we're in the upper room discourse or the farewell discourse where Jesus is, in a sense, saying goodbye to his disciples. He just 
He just said to them at the end of chapter 14, uh, and it's sort of unfortunate that there are any chapter divisions in this whole section, but uh, because it, it really is one uh, ongoing conversation that he's having with them. But he's just said, let us go. Come, let us go. Let's get up from dinner and go out into the night. Let's go to the garden where we'll meet my betrayer and uh, events will be precipitated from there. Let us go. And in, in actually, uh, at the end of this conversation, in, at the beginning of chapter 18, it says, then they went up and uh, went out into the night, out to the garden. So here I sort of imagine him and the disciples putting on their sandals while they're talking and praying. <clears throat> uh, their conversation here is drawing to an end just before they go out to the garden. So he's said these things, everything that's coming before, and especially sort of in this paragraph that we're looking at, <clears throat> he's said these things, and he's, he's telling um, his disciples the purpose for this part of the conversation. At the end of... Um, at the end of our paragraph, he's telling them his, it's sort of the purpose statement for this paragraph. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Right? That's why I'm saying all this. I'm saying all this for the purpose of a joy transfer from me to you to max out your joy, to crank your joy to 11. Right? And so what's he talking about? What's he saying will bring us this joy Mainly in this passage, and sorry, we just can't look at every verse and everything that's going on. <clears throat> um, we'd run out of time. Um, mainly he's saying abiding in him. Abiding in him is how we get his joy in us. It's how uh, our joy becomes complete and full. So abiding, which happens a lot in this passage, it's, it's the language of relationship. One might say it's social language. Relational language. Jesus says in verses 4 and 5, Abide in me, and I in you. For whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you could do nothing. So, abide. <clears throat> so he's talking about things that he actually says are not possible for people Apart from faith in him, apart from him, apart from spiritual union with him, the things that he's talking about can't be accomplished. You won't have it. You won't grow this fruit unless you're abiding in me and I in you, is what he says. It's more than just imitating Jesus, because really anybody could try to sort of externally or superficially imitate Jesus in certain ways. More than imitating him or acting like him, this fruit that he's talking about this fruit is the product of his own life at work in us. <clears throat> fruit, as he's talking about it, they're elements of his own life. They're aspects, they're facets of who he is in his relationship with God. Facets of his own life that will be born out in our lives. And I would guess that uh, when Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, which we've mentioned uh, a couple times during this, this series here, I would guess this is where Paul, in Galatians 5, gets the language of the fruit of the Spirit. It's from Jesus saying things like this, talking about fruit. The fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And these aren't the things that you would, you would say, yeah, those things are impossible apart from Jesus. 
But that's what he's saying is, is true. These fruit, unless you have the Spirit, unless you're abiding in me, these things will be impossible for you. You might think you've got them. You might uh, pretend you've got them. But if we're not connected to him, we cannot bear this fruit. Not really, Jesus is saying. Anything that looks like this fruit, but that doesn't come from our relational connection to him, according to Jesus, cannot be actual fruit. It's counterfeit, whatever it is. So if you want to have this fruit, and I think Jesus here is specifically talking about joy in this passage, um, if you want to have it, you've got to abide in him and he in you. That's how the gift exchange takes place. That's how the transfer of his joy takes place. C.S. Lewis, um, I know I'll probably quote him too much. Uh, He's got a great book called Surprised by Joy, which is sort of his spiritual autobiography. And he says he made it his life's mission to pursue joy, basically, pursuing just that feeling of elation, just this, this deep, you know, joy with gravity, not just a flitty happiness, but a real joy. He made it his life's goal to pursue that however he could get it. And whenever he sort of tasted it or got his fingers on it, it would slip through his grasp and he would just miss it, right? Because uh, he had to come to the conclusion eventually that when you're looking for joy itself, you don't get it. But when you're looking for Jesus, who's the source of all joy, that's when you get joy, right? When your attention is on him, when you're pursuing him, when you are abiding in him and enjoying your relationship with him, that's when you have joy. And so, um, so Jesus, instead of focusing us on the development of fruit, the fruit production process, right, saying this is how you can concentrate hard enough and squeeze out a little bit of joy in your life, right, just to focus your attention there. Instead, he focuses our attention on the connection point with him, on our relationship with him, which is where the fruit comes from. So if you want the fruit of Jesus' own life to be born out in your life, those things that characterize him, love and joy and peace and patience and so on, those fruit of the Spirit. If you want that to be born out in your life, it isn't just a matter of coming up with whatever strategies you can, of straining really hard to manufacture fruit. Fruit comes naturally when you abide in Christ. So Jesus gives us this powerful vineyard metaphor, this maybe allegory, because uh, there's several components to it that are um, relevant to our conversation. He says, he is the vine. He's the true vine. He says it a couple times. I'm the vine. He talks about his father. His father is the farmer who tends the vine. He's the vine dresser, the one who takes care of it and makes, makes sure it's flourishing and growing and bearing fruit like it's supposed to, right? like he wants, delightful fruit. And we are the branches. We're the branches. We're not the main trunk, right? We're just the branches, the part where you see fruit growing. Many times in the Old Testament, God's people are likened to a grapevine or they're likened to a vineyard that he planted. Uh, Jerry read from our Old Testament reading, Psalm 80, that there's a lot of times when uh, the vineyard or the vine or the fruit of the vine, those things come up. Uh, in the Old Testament, all over the place. So God's people are likened to this grapevine. Right? So God planted his vine in the land of Israel. He cleared the way. He got, got rid of all the weeds, so to speak, all the nations. He planted his vine, his, his people. He blessed his people, Israel. He intended that Israel should bear good fruit 
in their lives through their relationship with him, but instead lamentably almost every time that the Bible uses this metaphor about uh, this vineyard and this vine, Israel bears wild fruit. It's terrible. It's sour fruit or it's gone altogether. There's no fruit at all, right? Um, Which is evidence, in fact, that they're not in this vital relationship with him like he's called them to be. And so the vine is good for nothing except to be cast into the fire and barely even that. Nobody's going to warm their house with dried vine branches, grapevines, right? It's just... So Israel was meant to be a new humanity flourishing in their relationship with God. A new humanity on behalf of all humanity, on behalf of all people, in order to bless all people with the life of God dwelling in their midst. God's own life, God's God's own character living in them in all of their relationships, touching everything in the world. That's what God intended for his people, but just as everyone else in the world failed to have the life of God in them and to bear much fruit, just as everyone else failed, Israel failed. They rebelled against God, they rejected God, they ignored him. And so his vine bore no fruit. So God sent his son to be the true vine. To be the true vine, actually this is the true Israel, the true people of God, represented in the one man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's the true representative of all humanity flourishing in relationship to God, blessing others with the life of God, dwelling in their midst. And the way for us to receive this blessing of God's life in us, God's life among us and changing us from the inside out, to bear the fruit that humanity was always meant to bear in their relationship with God, we must be grafted in to the true vine. There's only one true vine, and if, if you want to be part of it, you're grafted in. Right? Like branches grafted into a vine, you're united to Jesus Christ in such a way that his life, his vitality, his life courses through us and produces fruit in us that shows that we really are connected to him. And he calls that spiritual union. He calls that relational connection. In this passage, he's calling it abiding. Abiding. This language of abiding shows up a lot in John's gospel, but especially here, a lot of times. When I say it's relational language and social language, this is ultimately what I mean by that. It's the language of the Trinity. It's the language of the only truly relational God, the one God whose being is a society of persons. Uh, So the root um, word here, the the Greek word for abiding, is meno. Meno is uh, translated here to abide. Also in places it's translated as to stay, to remain, to dwell like in a home. And I've said it a lot lately, and I hope it hasn't lost its significance through repeated use, but he's talking about mutual indwelling, language that comes from passages like this, mutual dwelling in, abiding in, 
is what Jesus is talking about. He says, the Father is in me, and I'm in the Father. So first and foremost, the place where this takes place is in God himself, in the Father and the Son. The Father lives in the Son. He makes his home in the Son. And the Son dwells in and abides and remains in the Father. And that mutual indwelling takes place in the communion of the Holy Spirit. And that is the very life of God, the relational God, the social God, the only true God, one God in three persons. And there's this sense in which, because this is true, this is how God lives, one person in another, and vice versa, this mutual indwelling, there's a sense in which God's own life is lived vicariously. I'm going somewhere with this. It's not just some crazy theological lecture. It really has significance for us. God lives vicariously. We've got some distorted reflections of what that means in the world. Usually when we talk about vicarious living, it's got bad connotations, right? For example, parents live vicariously through their children. You can see that when the Olympics are on. Parents living vicariously through their children, you see there the parents delight in the children's discovery or in the children's athletics or in the children's graduation, their achievement, their success in life. The parents are thrilled and they experience that joy as their own, as if it were their own. You imagine it and you delight with them and you enjoy their joy as your own. Right? And I say it's distorted because parents are often like slave drivers, crushing their kids with expectations, pushing them to achieve so that the parents can taste joy from their achievements like vampires. Right? Um, that's vicarious living, but not the way it's supposed to be. That's vicarious living in a self-centered way in a way that makes it about me. But God lives vicariously in a self-giving way. I'm not sure that even makes sense. (laughs) I'm not sure I can conceive of what that is, really. But he lives vicariously in a self-giving way. That is, the Father gives himself to the Son. The Son lives for the Father, on behalf of the Father, and represents the Father. The Spirit being the very personification of this gift this self-gift, this gift of vicarious life. And this is why the Trinitarian life is utterly characterized by those fruit of the Spirit. That's why the Trinitarian life is characterized by things like love and joy and peace because of this vicarious life, because of this mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son in the Holy Spirit. And that's the life we were made to share. That's the life God created us to share with him. Being created in God's image means having the capacity. It might mean a whole lot of other things, but I think it means fundamentally having the capacity to live vicariously in a relationship with God the same way God does. To enter into God's life, to have him enter into our lives, to bear the fruit of the Spirit in our relationship with him, being characterized in our lives by what characterizes God in his life because we're connected. And that's the life we rejected. We rejected, rather than abiding in him, 
We sought to live out of ourselves and unto ourselves and for ourselves, to be self-centered about it all. We decided for ourselves that we could get more joy apart from God. I know where real joy can be found, in that fruit over there that God told me not to eat. More joy apart from God, outside of his life, outside of his will, through our disobedience, through a rejection of him and of our own created nature. Walking away so we could be self-absorbed and self-centered. And now, now we don't think a vicarious life is even a legitimate life. We think, in order for your life to be authentic, it must be your own. You live it entirely, in and of yourself. Entirely and only. You can't derive your identity from someone else. That's like codependent or something. You, you, can't, you can't live in such a way that everything about you is true because of who this other person is. You've got to stand on your own. You've got to make your own way in life. Receive all of your life. Receive eternal joy as a gift. Freeloader. Parasite. Get a life. Get your own life. We gave up all our joy. We gave up real joy. Because we gave up our connection to the God of joy. The God of the vicarious life. The God of mutual indwelling. We gave up joy when we gave him up. But the Son of God, he didn't give up on us. He came into the world as Jesus Christ and he did it. He did what humanity was always meant to do. What we can't do. He did it. He lived the life of God in the Spirit, and he did it as a human being. That is, he made his home in God, and God made his home in him. As one of us, as our representative and for our sake, to open up the divine vicarious life to us and everything that characterized him as the eternal son of God in this perfect relationship with the Father, Everything that characterized him as, as divine came to characterize him as human, as a human being in relationship to God. So the social God's own joy in divine relationship, that real vicarious life, it became the joy of humanity in the person of Jesus Christ, the true vine. Because Jesus didn't live vicariously in that self-centered way, that parasitical way, the vampire way, but he, he loved the Father, and he kept all of his commandments. And that's the joy that he gives us. It's the joy of the Spirit-filled life. It's the joy of living in God and God living in us in such a way that we begin to keep his commandments. We're not just in this relationship to take. We're responsive to him. We hear what he has to say. We love what he has to say. And we do what he has to say to us. We abide in his love. Just as Jesus kept his father's commandments and abides in his love. And it's the joy of returning to God. Through faith in Jesus, it's spiritual joy. I'm sorry I can't articulate everything that means. It's, it's a spiritual joy that Jesus gives us through faith in him. It's a joy that can characterize us in any situation. doesn't matter what your circumstances are because we abide in Jesus in any situation and he abides in us.
This is no flighty superficial happiness that's tethered to pleasant circumstances. It wasn't that for Jesus. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. He went to face great pain. He went to face separation and death from his father, but it was because of joy. Because of what he knew this would all mean. Ultimately, for his relationship with the Father as he's resurrected and glorified at the Father's side, and ultimately for our, the restoration of our relationship and our joy. And, and he'll, he'll go on to say in uh, chapter 16 of John's Gospel, Jesus says, No one will take your joy from you. They can't do it. If your joy is tied to your circumstances, sure, plenty of people could take your joy away from you. They just have to kill you, take away your stuff. Um, but he's saying his joy, no one will take it from you. They can't. It's given to you as a gift. It's the joy of his relationship with his father. And if no one could take Christ's joy from him, because his joy is in his deep, eternal, delighted relationship with the father, and that's the very gift of life that he's planted inside you forever, you can share his own joy at any time. Anytime you're abiding in him, you can know it. You could taste it. Maybe that's hard to imagine when you live in a world of circumstances that uh, constantly threaten to rob you of your joy. I mean, even if you're on the right track, in a sense, it's difficult because the Father, Jesus says, is the vine dresser. And if you're bearing fruit, he's going to prune you. That's probably never a pleasant process for the, the grapevines and the branches, right? But the point of it is so that you'll bear more fruit, bigger fruit, tastier fruit, right? So you'll have even more joy. And that means sometimes God brings difficult circumstances into your life, not pleasant, but for the purpose of granting you even more joy, that your joy may be complete in your abiding in Christ. So D.A. Carson said that human joy in a fallen world will at best be ephemeral, shallow, incomplete until human existence is overtaken by an experience of the love of God in Christ Jesus, the love for which we were created, a mutual love that issues in obedience without reserve. Not the self-centered life anymore. The God-centered life. It really is a matter for your faith. Right? It's a matter for your trust in Jesus and in his word. Sometimes in spite of a whole host of very difficult, un unpleasant, not joyful circumstances in your life. It's a matter for your faith and your trust in the fact that he lived for you and he died for you in order to receive you into his life and put his joy in you. It's a matter for your faith. And maybe it's hard to believe, but as you see Jesus presented in the scriptures, you never get the sense that he wants you to be stuck dwelling in your own guilt, languishing in despair, trapped in frantic stress, or endless boredom. That's not what Jesus wants from you, for you, according to the scriptures. He came to crank your joy to 11, which happens as you rest in him and you abide in who he is and what he's done for you, turn your attention to him, and as his life with God courses through you by his spirit, bearing all the fruit of relationship with God in your life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it is hard for us to get our minds around uh, so many features of who you are and your life and your salvation. 
when they're so contrary and foreign to our experience in this fallen world, the things that we are prone to believe because we're sinful people who disbelieve you, it's hard for us to believe that you'd want us to be joyful, that you would actually give us once and for all as a free gift of your grace, the gift of your own joy, what it means to to live in relationship with you. Uh, We pray that this would become a reality for us that we can experience to some degree, even if we can't get our minds around it altogether. Um, Give us this joy because you fix our eyes on Christ, because we abide in Christ and he in us. Would you dwell in us and with us in ways that uh, change us from the inside out, make us more and more joyful like our Savior, the Lord of joy himself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.